It was planned that on Sunday, June 30th, 2013, over one and a half million people in thousands of churches in all 50 states would be on their knees praying for our nation. It all started in 2009 when a man was challenged by an elderly lady to use his influence to call the nation to our knees in prayer, clinging to the promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14, which if you're not sure what that is, we'll get to that in a second. The same day, he had read about the Continental Congress's call to prayer in 1775 that resulted in three million colonial Americans gathering on their knees in repentant prayer for our troubled, fledgling country. And that was the beginning of what has been called the call to fall. And this is how the, uh, I guess, the president of this, uh, this group ended a letter calling for people to join in prayer, prayer for our nation. He said, join, in us, join us in declaring our national dependence upon the Lord on Sunday, June 30th. If enough Americans will unite in humble, repentant prayer, I am trusting that God will hear our prayers, forgive our sin, and heal our land. And then he cites, again, Second Chronicles seven, fourteen. Which says, if, any, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. And this verse is riveted with great spiritual truths, the need for humility, prayer, the pursuit of God, repentance. Furthermore, it promises God's listening ear, forgiveness, and healing. And on the surface, it seems to be an ideal verse to claim for believers who long to see righteousness, truth, and blessing fall upon their country. But is it legitimate use? And so there's something to which we must turn in order to figure that out. It starts with a C. What is it? Context. I love that. Okay, so first, so that's in Second Chronicles. First Chronicles ends with the death of King David. And it says that his son Solomon began to reign in his place. First Chronicles 29, 28. Solomon then builds and furnishes the temple in Second Chronicles, kind of chapters 2 through 5. He prepares in chapter 2 and then... Five, he builds and furnishes the temple. And then in chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, Solomon blesses the people and dedicates the temple before the assembled people of God. And after Solomon's prayer, fire falls and consumes the sacrifices. We read in Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, 
For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And one author describes this event this way. This becomes a climactic moment for the nation of Israel. As God has fulfilled his promise to David about building a temple, David wanted to build a temple. David said, God said, you can't, but your son will. As Solomon stands before the people, he delivers a powerful speech topped by a prayer of dedication. He goes on, he says, imagine seeing Solomon kneeling before the Lord, spreading his hands to heaven, worshiping the Lord by recounting his covenant faithfulness. What a sight. He prays that the Lord would be attentive to his prayers and that the prayers of his people that are offered in this place and to the prayers of his people that are offered in this place. He asked further that the Lord would act as judge, the forgiver of sins. He would relent from divine judgment, such as drought and famine. And when the people come before him in repentance of their sin, that he would do that. Solomon asked the Lord to listen to the prayers of foreigners who seek his face at this temple, and that the Lord would bless Israel in time of war. And then finally, the Lord should allow Israel to be defeated on account of their sin. He asked God to forgive and maintain their cause when they repent. When he closes the prayer, he appeals to the Lord to definitively act on behalf of the temple, the priests, the people, and himself as the Lord's anointed king. And in a dramatic visual response, in affirmation of Solomon's prayer, Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices as we read. And the glory of the Lord fills the temple. The people fall down on their faces as they're overwhelmed by this magnificent event. And they worship the Lord with singing, sacrifices, and feast that lasts for another week. As we, you could read on um, the next six verses or so in Chapter 7. And following this, they returned to their homes with joy in their hearts. Really, the glory days of Israel are, in some sense, an, you know, an all time high. Well, years pass. Solomon, uh, he, he's built his, the Lord's temple, he, he builds his own palace, and the Lord appears to him in the night. And personally responds to Solomon, Solomon's public prayer that he made years earlier. So, would somebody read um, the Lord's response? This is Second Chronicles. We already read verse fourteen, but I want to read twelve through twenty-two now.
Yeah, through the end of the chapter. So, in order to understand the, how verse 14 should be used and understood and applied, you know the context. And so, a couple of things that we can, uh, in light of what we talked about, sort of our, our jog on up from the end of First Chronicles to uh, this point in chapter 7, and what we just read, we can surmise a few things. First, the recipient of the promise. Specifically, the promise in verse 14, to whom is it made? Yeah. So it's made, to be most specific, to Solomon, the king, who represents Israel. So to Solomon and the people that he represents, right? Israel, the nation of Israel. The place to which the Lord refers is what? what it, because there's a place that is tied in with, that you hear several times in this passage, tied in with this promise. What is it? Or a... The what? The temple. So this promise is made to, it, to Solomon, to the people of Israel, and it is made specifically regarding uh, or in relation to the temple. And so we can draw out the significance this way. The promise that the Lord gives is specifically to this king, these people, in this time and in this place. It's not meant to be a general promise that is given to any nation on the face of the earth. Can any other nation claim to be God's people? No other nation today, no nation today has the temple where the living God dwells. And so we very easily uh, can read over things like that. We come to places where we see promises, and it's, uh, like, like I said at the beginning, it has perhaps, it's got great spiritual truths in it. Great, it sounds like a great promise, one of which that we can easily kind of blindly cling to. But if we don't pay attention to who, to whom is a promise given, then we miss it. 
God says, uh, if you turn, in verse 19, if you turn aside from my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you and serve other gods and worship them, then I'll pluck you up from my land. We're not in God's land anymore. This land that had been promised to the patriarchs that the people were in now. So all of this is tied in together. It's important that we don't just take out of it one piece. And so the content of the promise. So first, to whom is the promise made, and then what is the actual promise? The Lord says, He assumes in this promise that the people are going to sin. Right? He says in verse 13, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, there's not this expectation of great blessings that are coming from obedience. He says, when I do that, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And so, God relents from his judgment in two ways in response to their prayer. First, he says what? He will hear. He will hear. And he will forgive their sin. God's people, he says, if you, Solomon, your people, when you sin, if you will pray, then I will hear, I will forgive your sin. And that, we hear that and we're like, okay, great. That's great, sort of sounds universal in its application. But secondly, he says he'll do what? He'll do what? Yeah, he'll hear and, kind of hear and forgive. I was thinking of one, and then second, he's going to do what? Heal. He's going to heal their land. Not only is God going, does he say in this promise that he will forgive the sin of his people Israel, but he will restore the physical land that was decimated by drought, famine, locusts, pestilence, these physical acts of judgment. And so, in other words, he will restore the land to be a land that has rain again. There will be crops and a harvest, and it will nourish and supply the needs of his people. The Lord says that he will, uh, his eyes will be open and his ears attentive, and he will hear the prayers offered where? In this place. Verse 15, now my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. If Solomon, God says, remains faithful to the Lord, 
God says that he will bless Israel. He will establish his kingdom forever. Verses 16 and 17. Anybody have a question or comment about that? Or just so far before we look at kind of how do we, I'm thinking how do we move to apply. If, if what we're saying is that this is not some blanket universal verse to take and apply and pray indiscriminately for our nation believing that because of 2 Chronicles 7.14 that God is going to bless and heal our land. What do we do with it? So that's sort of where I'm heading. But anybody have a, a question or comment at this point? Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, just little things like that. It doesn't sound like much, but really, uh, we've just, I think, for so long, uh, sort of in our American kind of cultural Christianity, we we always begin with the question of what does this verse mean to me, right? Rather than what does it mean? (laughs) What does it mean to them? Um, And so I always think that they have, that all verses have in the same way a complete direct application to us, and they don't necessarily. And so you have all of these references to this place, this people, this king, this time, this land, qualify the extent of this promise. Yeah, we, we always, if you didn't hear him, Trish said that we, we tend to make the, the narrative normative. We tend to make that which was written and perhaps is just, uh, maybe not just, but it's mainly, its intent is to be a description of what happened. And we want to say, now this is how it should be always and forever. Why is that? Because I feel like there's probably something, something good there in that desire that we, that we mess up. When we, there's a, a good desire in trying to make something that's descriptive, prescriptive. Okay. <laughs> we want the blessing to tie to it. Yeah, because we don't we don't normally uh, we don't go to some of the the harsh we don't go to uh, the book of Amos uh, as the Lord is just like I mean he is just like giving it to them and they're like yes you know we don't tend to do that <laughs> but I think it's in some ways it's a reaction a little bit against the kind of idea that the Bible is this distant archaic book that was written. Most people don't even have any idea who knows how long ago it was written in Hebrew and Greek and a little bit in Aramaic, and therefore we have a translation of a translation of a translation. I don't know why anyone, I don't know where the, why they think that or say that, but we react against this idea that says the Bible is so distant far from us that it really has nothing to do with us. And so our reaction is to say, no, of course it does. Every word of it does. Right? Every Word that's every all scriptures God breathes 
And it's profitable, right? And so 2 Chronicles 7.14, that's Scripture. That's God-breathed. That's profitable. But not, that does not necessarily mean that by profitable, that every promise is coming to me in exactly the same way that it's written and worded. There are principles that we have to take out from the text and understand. Anything else on those notes? So, I really, I have two, two things as far as application. So first, does this mean, are we saying then that we shouldn't pray for our country? Should we not pray for our nation and our leaders? Does God hate it when we pray for those in charge? Because he goes, there they go again. Second Chronicles 714. I just don't understand. Is that the only reason why anybody should pray for their nation? Well, no. Was only Israel allowed to, to, to pray for uh, the nation? No. Well, we uh, when you think then, what perhaps what does the whole Bible say about that? And so Although the binding promise of this passage was for another people in another time and another place, and it's not a promise for any nation besides the nation of Israel, those who, that is, those who could rightly be called God's people, the spiritual principles of humility, repentance, prayer, forgiveness, and healing are still relevant for us. And so, what do we do? Well, somebody, let's turn to, um, you can save your place there, but turn to First uh, Timothy chapter 2. And if some kind soul would read for us verses 1 through... Well, one through seven. Uh, that would be it. One through second, uh, First Timothy chapter two, one through seven. If somebody would read that for us, please. Oh yeah, I wasn't even reading. I was just. First Timothy, sorry. First Timothy chapter 2. Nice catch. Yep. First Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 7. He's making sure I pay attention. I wasn't.
Yeah, that's good. That's good there. Maybe. Um, okay, so, but the first part of that was really what we were after. That right here, Paul writes, he urges that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, or probably all kinds of people. And then, in other words, pray for kings, for those who are in high positions uh, of authority, for the purpose of, or so that, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And so, probably it's, depending on exactly how, every, how someone might say it or try to apply our verse in Second Chronicles, it's probably a, you know, that uh, kind of right doctrine, wrong text maybe. That idea of praying for those in leadership, uh, for blessing to come. Um, that if we have people who are leading the nation, who are doing so according to biblical principles and things like that, then we can rightly expect, it seems, not to have these tyrannical lives that are ruined by all sorts of disaster wrought upon us by our government. And so we pray for those in positions of authority that we may lead quiet and peaceful lives. God is eager for his people to pray for their nation's leaders. It's good and right that we do so. But we shouldn't think that on the basis then of our text in Second Chronicles that God has made some promise to us that if we do that, then there will be this automatic forgiveness of sins, healing of the land, and setting up basically an everlasting kingdom. Thoughts or questions on that? All right. Well, I think it's quite obvious, to me anyways, that there are, there's this kind of notion uh, in uh, the church in America today that, that kind of thinks of Americans as God's chosen people, right? Um, where you have, you know, there's this weird sort of intermingling of like nationalism and Christianity and worship services and things like that, that you're not quite sure how to navigate whether we worship God or our country. Well, as Paul says in Romans 9, he says that not everybody who is physically descended from Abraham belonged to the, you know, have gained the profit from the spiritual blessings that belong to Abraham. Not everybody who is simply an American, it's not that uh, I'm American, therefore I'm Christian, but because we live, we live in a culture that's so permeated by the, the gospel, or it's been inoculated with it, I guess, at this point, that there are so many people. I mean, when I was in high school, there was probably my graduating class if you didn't, if you said, I'm not a Christian, that was weird to people. 
People thought it was strange that there were people in our school that said, yeah, I'm not a Christian. But there were, I think, very few people that I graduated with that actually were Christians. I don't know about them now, but when we graduated, I don't think they were. But it was this cultural identity that I'm an American or I'm Southern or whatever, and so therefore I'm a Christian. And so we, we have this idea that America has somehow replaced Israel as God's chosen people. But just because there are Christian roots, at least of sorts, in this country, and God has seen fit to provide the inhabitants of this land with previously unknown amounts of freedom and material riches, does not mean that all who belong to America belong to God. In fact, I think while patriotism, like a a loyalty of sorts and love for one's country, is a good thing, uh, we shouldn't confuse our nation and country with God's kingdom. Think of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. He says, we are grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If we know anything or pay attention to anything in world history, we know that every kingdom has an end. There's no kingdom built, made by man that is going to last. And when we put our eggs in the basket of this kingdom or that kingdom, it's going to fall apart. We have hope in the kingdom of God that cannot be shaken, that never will come to an end. When we come to faith in Christ, we are made citizens of a better country. You see that in chapter 11. Right? God is talking about In this hall of faith, those who persevered in faith. Verse 16. Yeah, that they did so. They desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We're not, we don't have our hope tied up in this place, in this time, in this world. Kings and tyrants and politicians can come and go, but God's rule is steadfast. The world can be turned upside down in every horrible way imaginable. But in the end, if I am a citizen of heaven... God will bring me safely. I was uh, last week at the missions conference when Pastor Bob was, uh, this was Sunday night, and he referenced that text in 2 Timothy where Paul, Paul says that, uh, he talks about I'm abandoned. Everyone's left me. And I know that God will deliver me from every 
evil deed or something like that for he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. He's got to die to get there. That was amazing to me. We, it, like, it, we talk so much about safety and like we don't do something unless it's safe. That's like maybe not number one, but it's like number two or three in our checklist of like, can I do this thing? Well, if there's any danger involved, I don't want to. I don't do it. Unless we're like a teenage boy, then we don't care. But for some reason, we, we get older and we're all of a sudden we're, but Paul says he will bring me safely. You want to talk about safety? Are you safely going to make it to God's heavenly kingdom? That's what Paul was worried about. Is that what we are worried about? Or are we worried about our safety now? Is it bad to be safe? Am I, you know, say now we've, we've got to go and make sure like, all right, I'm not going to look both ways before I cross the street. No. But this is not our home. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We have this dual citizenship. We belong to some nation on earth, citizens of that nation, but our loyalty, our hope, mustn't lie there. The world is fallen. It's decaying. Our nation is not perfect. The culture that we live in, even in America, from all appearances, is growing more and more openly and outwardly hostile and intolerant of Christianity by the day. By the hour, perhaps. And so we must, not, we must be careful not to stake our claim here. We shouldn't mistake the country we live in now for the kingdom of God. I've said that already, but I think it bears repeating. And so this kingdom, America, one day come to an end. This world, one day, as we know, it will come to an end. Sooner or later. And until that time comes, what should we do? We should walk faithfully, proclaim the gospel, pray for our country and its leaders, and rejoice in the freedoms that we have, the privilege of enjoying. And we should bank our hope on the kingdom that is to come. And so lastly then, what, what do we do with Second Chronicles? Okay, so that's, that was for them, this is for us. They've got Second Chronicles 7.14, we've got First Timothy 2. Are you going to say something, Jeff?
Well, also, we can ask, what happened? So God makes this promise to the people of Israel. What did they do? Were they really great and really strong in the faith and cling to that promise? No. Did, God's, did God set up his everlasting kingdom there as a result of Solomon's uh, great and grand uh, leadership skills and his fulfillment of everything that got... No. They sinned. <laughs> they repented, then they sinned, they repented. But eventually the kingdom is torn apart, people are exiled... God did, though, establish his kingdom through Solomon. But not in Solomon's faithfulness, but because of God's promise. Not because Solomon and the people walked faithfully before him and did what they were supposed to do. But rather, because of God's faithfulness to his own word, through Solomon's line... God kept his promise and finally did fulfill and establish his everlasting kingdom in Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. In Christ, our Lord, we have forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we will be brought to a land, new heavens, a new earth, that will never famine, will never need to be healed. In Christ, we are being brought to an everlasting kingdom where we will reign with God for all eternity. So we have great principles that we can draw out of this passage. We have other passages of Scripture that affirm the need and the rightfulness of praying for our leaders and our nation. But in the end, our home is not here because of Christ. If we are in Christ, then no matter what happens here to us, we will be brought safely to God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray, God, that through these faltering words, these feeble lips, this sinful man that uh, your word has been taught and discussed faithfully in truth. 
Pray, Lord, that you would help us to apply your word to our hearts. Keep us from using the text wrongly, from twisting the text, even unintentionally. Help us, O Lord, to devote ourselves to it, submit ourselves humbly to your word. And give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand your truth. Be with us now, Lord, as we go to worship, as we come together to gather in the name of Jesus. Get glory for yourself, O Lord. Be with Nick as he preaches. Come upon him with your spirit. Give him that uh, unction that without he can say nothing of value. And give us, Lord, hearts that are receptive to your word. Meet with your people now in this hour. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.